Well, I'm excited about the passage that we're going to read together this morning because we're going to talk about hope and liberation and freedom all as we look at the life of Joseph in the book of Genesis. I'd like you to read with me just a few verses on the front of your notes this morning. Uh, this is Genesis 39, verses 20 to 23. Let's do this together, if you will. Genesis 39. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison, and he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. Lord God, we lift our eyes to you this morning. We thank you for the seasons that we go through. We thank you even for the snow that comes down and for the way that it makes us realize that there are many things in this world that we are powerful to stop or to change, and, and you are the one who created this amazing world that we live in. We also realize we live in a world that's broken, and part of what we are going to talk about this morning is uh, found in that context where, where people do awful things to each other and where sometimes the seasons of life that we live through are very difficult. So we ask for your wisdom, your guidance. We ask that you'd allow us to not only understand uh, these scriptures that we're going to look at, but also to see how they fit into what you have been doing from beginning to end and how you enfold Joseph's story into your grand redemptive plan and how you also involve our stories and wrap them into your grand redemptive plan. Lord, we ask that you would uh, make us wise knowing how to live each and every day, how to act with grace, how to talk with each other, and how to talk with those who are outside the church looking for strains of grace. We ask that you would put people in our pathways who can be blessed as a result of the way that you shower your blessings on us. And we ask that you would pour out your grace, your mercy, and even your favor on us. We continue to play, pray for Linda as she recuperates in the nursing home, and we also pray for Karen this morning as she continues her battle with cancer. And there are many others in our church who may have some unspoken need, and we ask that you would hear them all and that you would respond, and that as we draw near to you, you would draw near to us. Now guide us in these moments as we look at your word in Jesus' name. Amen. During the time when George Bush, Bush 41, served as vice president, he represented our country at the funeral of former Soviet leader Leonid Brezhnev. Mr. Bush was deeply moved near the funeral's end by a silent protest that he witnessed that was carried out by Brezhnev's widow. Mrs. Brezhnev stood motionless by the coffin until just seconds before the lid was finally closed. And then just as the soldiers touched the lid in order to close it for that last time, Mrs. Brezhnev performed what Vice President Bush saw as an act of great courage. He considered it one of the most profound acts of civil disobedience, courage, and hope that he had ever witnessed. 
What did she do? She reached down into the coffin and very quietly made the sign of the cross over her husband's chest. Now think of that, for you, those of you who are old enough to remember, back in the days of the Cold War. There in this citadel of secular atheistic power, the wife of the man who had run it all hoped that her husband was wrong. Ladies, how often have you hoped your husband was wrong? Right? No, you don't have to raise your hands on that one. That's daily, guys, right? Uh, she hoped that there was another life and that, the li and that that life was best represented by Jesus who died on the cross and that that same Jesus somehow would yet have mercy on her husband. And so she made the sign of the cross over his chest and they closed the lid. The Apostle Paul wrote these words in Romans chapter 5. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. I have a question. Have you ever noticed the specific order of those four key words in those verses? Suffering, perseverance, character, and hope. Paul put them in that order because that is usually the sequence in which we discover them in our own lives. Suffering, to whatever degree we engage it or undergo it, produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character, and character produces hope. This morning we're going to continue our series on the School of Hope. Two weeks ago, I launched this series by talking about Abraham and the foundation of hope. And then last week, Pastor Christie just nailed it with her message about Jacob, who was buried in hope. And today, in part three of this School of Hope, we're going to go back to Genesis again as we look at the life and lessons from Jacob's son, Joseph. Three things right off the bat that I want you to know about Joseph. Joseph is one of the key characters in the Bible's opening book called Genesis. The ups and downs of his life are the primary subject of chapters 37 to 50 of Genesis. This means that Genesis gives him more ink than Adam and Eve, more than Isaac and Jacob. Only Abraham's life fills more chapters of Genesis than Joseph's life. Here's the first thing I want you to know. Joseph was his father's favorite. He was the eldest son of Rachel, the beloved wife of Jacob, and yet... In this complicated family, he was the 11th of 12 sons. It was a large, rambling family marked by jealousies and favoritism. Like all the sons of Jacob, Joseph worked as a farmhand, but Joseph was his father's favorite, and his older brothers hated him for it. And Jacob also gave Joseph an ornate, multicolored robe that today has turned into a technicolored robe, the second thing I want you to know about Joseph is that Joseph had dreams about how life would turn out. This was based on two very memorable dreams that he had that he told his brothers about. And in these dreams, Joseph saw images where his brothers bowed down to him. Of course, this caused the brothers to hate him even more. Imagine if you had siblings who had dreams like that and told you about it. The third uh, introductory detail is that Joseph's brothers sold him to some traders who then sold him again in Egypt as a slave. Jacob had sent Joseph to find his brothers as they tended the family flocks. When they saw him coming, they referred to him as the dreamer, and they plotted to kill him. 
But the oldest brother, Reuben, persuaded the others simply to throw him into a cistern instead, a dry well where there was no water. Reuben had wanted to quietly sneak back and rescue Joseph and bring him back to their father. But while he was gone, the other brothers stripped him of his robe, sold him to a group of Midianite traders who were on their way to Egypt. Joseph would live, but he would be sold on the open slave market once he got to Egypt. And the boys made up a story to tell the old man that Joseph had been killed by a wild animal. All this is the backdrop for what we're going to look at today in this message that I'm calling Serving in Hope. Here's the first lesson we learn from Joseph in in looking at his life basically in, in chapter 39 and chapter 40 of Genesis. The first thought is that it's better to have God's favor than to be the favorite. Verse 2 of Genesis 39 reads this way, The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered, and he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. Oh yes, Joseph was, uh, was still back in, in, in would, would rather be back in Canaan where he was fa- his father's favorite. We don't know that Joseph did anything to become his father's favorite. But being back home wasn't really safe for him. His brothers no longer wanted him there. They'd labeled him in their hatred. Here comes that dreamer, they said. Not Joseph, not our little brother. Here's that dreamer. They were willing to risk breaking their father's heart to get rid of him. And they sold him for 20 shekels without caring much at all what would happen to him. The great contrast in the story is that we discover God's presence with Joseph in Egypt. And so verse 2 of this chapter tells us that the Lord was with him while he served under this man named Potiphar. Potiphar, we come to find out, was in charge of all the palace guard in the kingdom of Egypt. And in verse 21, it says that the Lord was with him later on in the prison that Joseph ended up in. The third indication of the Lord's presence comes in Genesis chapter 41, after Joseph interprets a dream for the Pharaoh of Egypt, in other words, the king of Egypt, And the king ends up saying, can we find anyone like this man in whom is the Spirit of God? So twice we're told that God was with him. The third time we're told that an outsider, this pagan pharaoh, sees the Spirit of the living God in Joseph and realizes there's nobody else in all the land who's quite like him. While in prison, Joseph had interpreted dreams for the king's baker, the king's cupbearer, and now he interpreted a dream for the pharaoh himself. Nobody else in the land had been able to interpret this dream. But one of the men that Joseph had met in prison remembered that Joseph had this amazing ability from God and that he would surely interpret the Pharaoh's dream. In each of these situations, God blessed everything that Joseph did. In Potiphar's home, we're told that God blessed everything the master put under Joseph's care. When he was sent to the prison, the warden stopped watching Joseph because God blessed everything that was under Joseph's care and direction. And soon God would bless all of Joseph's administration of Egypt's produce and finances. I searched through a list of people who had found God's favor where that concept is mentioned in the Bible. And there's quite a select list. For instance, Noah found favor in God's eyes in the midst of a very corrupt generation. Moses found the favor of the Lord. It's written about in Exodus 32. Samuel grew in the favor of the Lord while he was still a young boy serving as a priest. David wrote of God, His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts for a lifetime. 
And David knew that favor despite all the ups and downs of his life. A young woman named Mary marveled that she had found favor with God when she was chosen to bear God's son, Jesus. And Luke tells us that young Jesus also grew in the favor of the Lord. Here's the point of, of raising this list of people who found favor with God. We can serve in the hope of gaining the favor of the Lord. God often grants favor to people who serve him and who love him. This has nothing to do with the kind of work that we do or the prestige that we hold in the world or the families that we're born into, that God can shine his favor anywhere. So it's better to have God's favor than to be the favorite. And Joseph was discovering that. Here's the second lesson we learned from the life of Joseph. Hope takes shape when others notice God's favor. The next few verses in Genesis 39 read this way. When his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. A little while later in that same chapter, we read two more verses that are similar to this. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were, were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. Now notice what happens here. First, Joseph served in the home of this ruler of the guards, this captain of the guards named Potiphar. Potiphar was one of Pharaoh's key officials, and Joseph was sold to him as a personal slave or as a servant. We don't know how quickly this happened after Joseph arrived in Egypt. We don't know the price that was paid. But despite the fact that Joseph does not have his own freedom, he does not give up hope. And he serves with all his heart, does whatever is given to him in the home and under the direction of Potiphar. And Potiphar noticed that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, so much so that Potiphar ends up entrusting everything that he has to the leadership and administration of Joseph. Then we see this pattern repeat itself when Joseph winds up in prison. First we see that Joseph went to prison because he was falsely accused. Looks bad, right? Things are heading downward. Well, actually, maybe not so much. The, the penalty in Egypt for rape was death, and Joseph had been accused of trying to rape his master's daughter. But somehow Potiphar doesn't shoot for that. Instead, he has him locked up in the Pharaoh's political prison. How do we know? Because Joseph befriends servants to the Pharaoh who had been working directly in the presence of the Pharaoh. One of them is the baker who, who makes the king's food. The other is the cupbearer who tastes every cup of wine or every piece of food that the, the king would eat in order to make sure that the pharaoh had not been poisoned. I imagine that he ate pretty good. He ate like he was at the Carduses every single week because the pharaoh would be that good. The pharaoh's food would be that good. Then the Lord also granted him favor in the eyes of this prison warden. This is an amazing story. You and I know what prisons are like. There's a huge difference between those who are incarcerated, the guests of the prison, if you will, and those who work there. I've been inside just enough prisons to know that there's a huge difference between the two. And yet here in this situation, the warden comes to trust Joseph. 
And he puts more and more responsibilities under Joseph's hands. And as he notices God's blessing on Joseph and God's favor on Joseph, he stops watching Joseph. He no longer is even concerned because everything that Joseph touch, touches is blessed. Okay, what does that mean for you and me all these years later? Having the favor of God is not just a feeling. When God pours out his favor, other people notice. Acts 2, verse 47, describes some of the uh, events and some of the outcomings of the very first church in operation in the city of Jerusalem. And there it tells us that the church not only grew by adding people to their numbers daily, but they also enjoyed the favor of all the people. So that same concept was used. It's one of the reasons why we see the, the early church begin to grow from this tiny little band to become something that's swept through all of Europe and eventually around the world. Because God's favor rests on his people who do his will and who draw near to him on a regular basis. This is one of the things that I often pray for in regard to you, in regard to the people of North River Community Church. I often pray that God will grant us together his favor. Why? Why would I do that? I've studied this concept enough to know that there are times when God absolutely grants favor to people so that other folks notice what's going on inside of your lives and my life, and they can see the hand of God, they can see the touch of God, they can see the blessing of God, so much so that they want it and they desire it. And I long for that day when people talk about our church fellowship in just such a way in all the communities around here and say, these people know the favor of God. Wouldn't that be awesome? That God would grant us his favor with him and with all the people who are around us. But we also need to watch out for the downside of this concept of God's favor. While we may enjoy the Lord's favor, some others may hate us for that. And that's exactly what happened with Joseph. Joseph had dreams that were tied to God's overall purpose for his life. And his brothers hated him because of his dreams. They didn't understand them. They knew it made Joseph different in some way. And they were turned off by that. Think of Jesus. The New Testament tells us that Jesus knew the favor of God and yet the religious leaders of that day plotted to kill him. So having the favor of God doesn't always mean that everything's going to work out the way that we want. But whose favor would you rather have? The favor of God or the favor of all the people who resent God or resent people who are blessed by God? I don't know about you, but I'd rather have God's favor than anybody else's. In the case of Joseph and, and with Jesus, Nothing happened that was apart from the purposes of God. And so we discover that God was with him through all of these ups and downs that were a part of his life. Hope takes shape when others notice God's favor. Here's the third lesson that we pull from these chapters in Joseph's life. Hope transforms the pit, the prison, and the palace all at the same time. Whether you find yourself in the pit whether you find yourself in a prison where you're confined, whether you find yourself on top of the world and in a palace, it is hope that makes the difference in how, the, how we live. So verse 20 says, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Notice these words, prison, prisoners, confined. 
This was not a place of joy. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him and showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. As I was studying this week, I found this comment by Thomas Aquinas helpful. He wrote, Faith has to do with things that are not seen and hope with things that are not at hand. There's a slight difference between the two. Hope is when we, we believe that things are yet to come and we have that confidence, but they're not yet there. They haven't yet materialized. Very early in the Joseph accounts, we see that Joseph's hope is tied to his dreams. His dreams involved seeing his brothers and family members bow down to him. He didn't understand it. They didn't understand it. And his dreams indicate a God-given role of importance that Joseph saw for himself. But the trajectory of Joseph's life was not what we would expect for somebody who has great dreams and has a purpose that is clearly marked out by God. His brothers throw him in a pit, a dry cistern or a dry well. Wasn't a pleasant experience and he was wondering what was happening. Was this just a prank? Was this just a game? But they end up selling him into slavery. And after serving in Potiphar's home, he ends up in a prison. And after serving the warden in the prison, Joseph finally ends up in the king's palace, interpreting a dream for him. And at each stop, Joseph's hopes are built up and then dashed again. In fact, after he interprets the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, the cupbearer is restored to his position, but he goes on with life and he forgets all about Joseph. And two more years go by and Joseph is alone without either of those friends. Combined, Joseph spent 13 years from when his brothers sold him into slavery to when Joseph took his role as the second highest ruler under Pharaoh in Egypt. The pattern that we see with Joseph is the same pattern that Paul wrote about in Romans. There Paul said, not only so, but we glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And Joseph's sufferings produce all of these things, perseverance, character, and hope. Not only did hope survive in the pit, the prison, and the palace, but we also see that hope transformed these locations. The entire, this entire narrative fits within the overarching redemptive purpose of God. God used that pit and his brother's treachery to get Joseph to Egypt. God used that prison to sharpen Joseph's skills and to introduce him to a key person in his life, the cupbearer who would stand before the Pharaoh. Then God used the palace experience to protect Joseph's entire family during a massive regional famine. And 400 years later, the Exodus story would start from there in Egypt. And the Exodus story leads all the way to Jesus because God was beginning his redemptive work toward his people. You may be going through a pit or a prison experience right now. I don't mean to make light of anyone's experience who's ever done time in prison, but there are some places in this world that test you and try you just as much. Nigerian pastor Nelson Mkonu describes these situations this way. He asks, what is prison? It is a place where potential lies 
dormant. It is a place of frustration. It is a place of hopelessness and helplessness. It is a place where total freedom is restricted. It is a place where destinies are confined. It is a place of punishment. It is a place of denied rights and denied privileges. It is a place of limitation, affliction, a place filled with stress about the unknown. You may be going through a pit or prison experience now, or when I raise those concepts and define them the way we just did, you remember back to one of those moments. When you serve God's purpose in your life, God is able to transform your pit or your prison experience by producing wonderful characteristics, and among them are perseverance, character, and hope. And all this leads to the main idea that I want to get across this morning. When we give our stories and our lives to God, hope leads us to hold on for that which is not yet at hand. That's what hope does. It, it keeps us pressing on knowing that God is still up to something behind the scenes. The fourth discovery we, that we make is that hope enfolds us. It enfolds us deeply into God's redemptive work. So toward the end of the Joseph narrative in chapter 50, he says these amazing words to his brothers. The scene is that now that Father Jacob has died, the passage that, that, that Christy was talking about last Sunday, and Joseph says to his brothers who are suddenly struck with fear, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. When they were young, Joseph's eldest 10 brothers were ruthless men. They hated him. They sold him. They concocted a plan where they smeared his robe with the blood of an animal. And then for 22 years, they lied to their father, Jacob, about Joseph's death. How do we know this? By putting together all the clues and the timing and so many years had gone by after Joseph had interpreted the Pharaoh's dreams. And now putting those details together, we realize when Joseph meets up with his brothers again, he's 39 years old. He was a 17-year-old kid when they sold him off. And his dreams came true. The dream he interpreted for Pharaoh involved seven years of plenty and seven years of famine. And when the famine had stricken all the fields in the region. Joseph's brothers had to come from the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, to Egypt, searching for food. The rumor was out that there was some wise person back in Egypt who had stored away grain during all the years of plenty. They didn't know that was Joseph. And they ended up buying grain from Joseph so their families could survive. And when they did, they bowed low to the ground to Joseph, second in command of all Egypt. But as he was reunited later with his father and with his youngest brother, Joseph forgave all of these older brothers. He did this because he saw that all of this time God had been at work. And so he says these amazing words, you intended it to harm me, but God intended it for good. And he forgave them. Consider again that quote from Thomas Aquinas. Faith has to do with things that are not seen, and hope with things that are not at hand. Hope kept Joseph going in all those days when he believed that the dreams that he had been given were true, and yet they were not yet at hand. When you and I give our stories to God, hope leads us to hold on for that which is not at hand. 
There are many promises that God gives to the Christian, that Christ will come again, that there will be a renewal of this world, that heaven itself will come down to earth, and there'll be a restoration of the earth in all of its beauty. We long for these things. We long for the abolishment of sin and evil and suffering, but they're not yet at hand. And so we hope for these things that God has promised, knowing that God has already fulfilled so many promises in the past. I believe that God greatly uses the hardest parts of our lives. And in many times, he directs us to those seasons. This week, I, I read about the Davidson Institute for Talent Development. A study was published back in 1964 and then renewed in 2003 that looked at the lives of 400 great leaders from past eras the first time, and then another 300 or so were added when a second phase of this study was done years later. In the study, they included biblical characters like Moses and David and all kinds of world leaders through the years like Churchill and Roosevelt. The authors of the study noticed that virtually all of the people that they studied displayed character that was forged through periods of hardship and adversity. Ever go through a period of hardship or adversity and you think, I wish this was over? How did I get here? This must be a mistake. Where is God when I'm going through the hard times? And yet, even these secular studies show that part of what often happens in our lives is that character is defined and developed during these seasons of hardship, these seasons of adversity in our lives. I do not believe that God creates or causes all the diversity, uh, adversity in our lives, but I do believe with all my heart that God uses it all for his purposes. And when we give, him, give our stories, hope leads us to hold on for that which is yet ahead, that which is not yet at hand. So I have a question for you as we wrap up this morning. Two weeks ago, we talked about saying yes to God's plan, and, and I raised the question, what would it look like, what would it feel like, what would it seem like if 2019 was the year when our whole congregation was filled with people who were saying yes to God whenever God nudges or whispers or seems to direct you in, in a new way. Whenever you and I say yes to God, we are giving our stories to God. We are holding on in hope for that which is not yet at hand. So again, I want to ask what would happen if we said yes to Jesus this year? Yes, Lord, I will love God with, and love my neighbors with all my heart my soul, and my strength. Yes, Lord, I will open my heart in order to make North River a place of grace and community that doesn't stop when the, when the church doors close on Sunday. Yes, Lord, I will open my home to deep, rich fellowship that extends outward. Or yes, Lord, I will open my life to a discipling or mentoring group so that I can be intentional about my faith. Yes, Lord, I will open my calendar, creating room to serve my church or to serve my community or both. Yes, Lord, this is the year when I will open my mouth and I will offer my faith story, my faith story here in the congregation or to carve out a friendship with a friend or a neighbor or a coworker, earning the right to tell that friend about the way you have poured grace and mercy into my life. Yes, Lord, I will open up my private thoughts by joining a team to pray about your mission. Yes, Lord, I will open my hands to give however you lead me to resource your work in whatever way you desire. 
Yes, Lord, I will take the next step in my spiritual development starting today. This is my year to join a small group Bible study. This is my year to get baptized or to publicly declare my faith in Jesus. This is my year to take that class that I've been putting off. This is my year to get my finances in order so that I can become a principled giver. This is my year to say yes to whatever God's Spirit has been tugging at me to do. Whenever you and I say yes to God, we are giving our stories to God and letting Him unfold the future as we hold on in hope. And my hope is that you and I will continue saying yes to God all this year, holding on in hope for that which is not yet at hand. I believe if we do this, this is not only a year that starts with hope, but this will be a great year that leads into discovering God's favor in new ways. And I can't think of a greater thing to pray for in my life or in your lives. Let's do that now. God, I simply pray that your spirit will call, whisper, nudge, direct, push, or shove <laughs> whatever it takes for you to lead us into where you are directing us next. Give us all the heart when it is clear that you are the one who is whispering or nudging to say yes. And Lord, I pray that you will pour out your favor on our entire congregation. Those who are here this morning, those who will be here next service, those who couldn't get out this morning. May we know in a profound way more greatly than ever before your favor on our workplaces, your favor on our homes, your favor on our decisions, your favor on our friendships, your favor over the way that we live out our faith. And we pray that you'll fill us with hope that you can again do great things through us. We offer all of this to you in ways that will glorify you and that will glorify Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Friends, thanks for digging out early this morning and for getting yourself here and for starting off this week together. Uh, we're going to collect our, our tithes and offerings. And uh, for those of you who do that here, you can do that now as our ushers come forward. Uh, you can also mail those in with the, with the envelope that you have, or you can do that online. And we're grateful for your generosity to our church. We've got one final song that David and the team are going to lead us in. We're going to sing about God's love over us, which fits very nicely with this concept of his favor.